Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number seven of our discussion of the nature of Middle-earth. I thought that tonight we would talk about uh, aging scales among the elves, just for a change. I'm just teasing. We're almost done, actually, with this section, um, though, as we will see, not done uh, with Tolkien continuing to try to kind of test his way through this. Um, I'm finding this process, it's okay, it's a little bit less fascinating than the, than the initial world building he was doing, but it's really interesting to watch him continue to try to um, refine and um, uh, and uh, you know, I said we've seen him, you know, doing like sort of play testing, right? He has to make sure that this narrative is going to work, and we will begin to see more and more clearly, I think, over the course of our discussion this evening, where his priorities plainly lie. Um, so. Okay, anyway, but before we begin, a couple quick announcements. First, I wanted to uh, draw your attention to our space module. So if you go to Signum University slash space, you will see that we have confirmed five modules. The people have spoken. We have confirmed five modules for December. Um, we have an introductory Latin class for people who would like to learn Latin and are just beginning. It's going to be a really fun Christmas-themed Latin translation class um, for people who have studied Old English before and would like to either brush up or maintain your Old English to make sure you don't lose what you have uh, worked to gain. Um, we're going to have an Old English poetry translation uh, module. Uh, for those who are creative writers, we have a creative writing workshop, which is going to be a lot of fun. If so, if you're looking for support, encouragement, and accountability in your creative writing in the month of December, uh, you know, maybe you want to continue and polish up your NaNoWriMo project or whatever it is. Uh, I know that Sparrow, who is our creative writing instructor for December, is working on her NaNoWriMo project right now. Um, then that would be a great module for you. And, and then we have two... Um, uh, we have two fantasy literature uh, modules. One very seasonal uh, module on the Father Christmas Letters uh, by, uh, uh, by Tolkien, and then another uh, really interesting one uh, on Tolkien's dwarves, looking at Tolkien's dwarves and their connection with Jewish mysticism. Uh, the connection between Tolkien's dwarves and the Jews is something that Tolkien talked about, uh, on several occasions, but no one's really ever totally understood exactly what he meant by that, exactly where in those uh, uh, connections lay. And I know I have always had a relatively, I don't know, simplistic uh, view of that connection. Um, well, uh, Robert Steed, who's going to be teaching that class, has uh, some theories that it goes substantially deeper uh, than superficial, uh, and I think that should be really fascinating. So, um, anyway, those are the modules that we're offering for December, and I, 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 I leave those to you. Uh, remember that if you'd like to take one of our modules, uh, all you need to do is uh, purchase one or more of our space tokens. Those never expire. You can give them away. They make awesome Christmas presents. Um, so you can, uh, you know, uh, buy tokens and give them to a few friends and take a, a space module together. Uh, lots of fun. Um, the other thing really quickly that I wanted to announce was um, you, some, several of you were, uh, were clamoring for a new uh, uh, design for the Signum store uh, based on one of our discussions of a couple weeks ago. And ask and ye shall receive. There we go. We and You can, in fact, get language is the primary art uh, on a t-shirt or 
throw pillow or whatever you would like. So there we go. Um, in fact, there are a number of new, uh, there are like five or so new uh, Signum merch designs on our Signum store on Redbubble. Um, so I recommend uh, that you go and check those out. There are a bunch of seasonal ones, um, lots of uh, lots of really cool uh, 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 Yule-themed designs, um, and uh, should be should be a lot of fun. So anyway, there you go. Just for those of you who are thinking, several people said uh, when we were having that discussion, and we got to that wonderfully, that like quintessentially Tolkienian passage where he was talking about language and art, and language being the primary art. Um, uh, several of you were saying like, oh man, that would make a great t-shirt. We agree. And so there it is. We even put the asterisk next to it, uh, you know, to uh, remember Tolkien's asterisk in the margin uh, next to uh, next to that paragraph because he liked it so much. So yeah, that's the uh, that's the that's the purpose of the asterisk uh, there. Anyway, um, so I de- so I definitely go to the uh, go to the Signum University store on Redbubble. Uh, the easiest way to find the link for that, if you're looking for the link, uh, go to the Signum University homepage, and in the support menu, you will find a link uh, to the Signum University store, uh, so you can find stuff there. All right, um, let us. Um, uh, let us move back into the text here. So um, we were in, um, we just gotten into chapter nine here. I'm going to see my goal. I might go to get through chapter. I've not been getting through my reading assignments much so far in this discussion. I'm going to see if I can do it tonight. Um, tonight we get to the point where he really begins monkeying with the ratios, right? With the time ratios, having established uh, as he did very early on, that he wanted the ratio between valiant time and mortal time to be a, a bigger gap, right? He wanted there to be a bigger gap between them. You may remember that or his original estimate when he was um, had been just relatively recently uh, working out the Annals of Amon and things like that. Um, uh, he was doing a, working on a 10 to 1 basis of time, um, 10 mortal years for every valiant year. Um, and you will recall from our early discussions of this book um, that he began this whole saga by rejecting that, right? When he sits down to do this world building, he says, no, 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 it needs to be greater. He toyed with 12 to 1, settled on 144 to 1, right? But we've already seen him begin to kind of tweak that. And in particular, where he tweaked that most was in the growth years of the elves, right? You'll remember that he had, um, in the sort of later stages of his thinking this through, he decided that elves grow faster than they mature. They reach this point where they hit the brakes, right? Um, That they grow at the rate of 12 to 1, and then they age at the ratio of 144 to 1 thereafter. So, uh, and that my sense of that there is simply he's wanting to kind of make the ratios work. Um, uh, he, he's wanting to make, to make the ratios work, but seems to have felt that it made elvish youth too weird in some sense, right? I mean, remember that there was that time when he was looking at elvish gestation, right? Lasting over a century of mortal time, right? That, that elvish pregnancies taking three quarters of a year equals three quarters of 144. And we had, you know, the poor elvish women, um, uh, pregnant, I guess they're not poor because again, no pain in childbirth and all that kind of thing. Um, but, um, does that mean that like, you know, their feet don't get tired? It's hard to imagine, but anyway, um, so, 
they um uh he seemed to be uncomfortable with the idea of that kind of thing and then of course the logical extension of that as well which is that elvish children would have been taking thousands of years, right? I mean, he was still thinking in terms of like, okay, the equivalent of 20 mortal years, right? You know, so when they're, when they're 20 is when they become marriageable. Um, and he decided, I, I don't really want that to be when they're like 3,000, right? I want that to be, um, or, you know, I don't want them to be children for thousands of years. Um, he wanted them to grow up much faster than that um, so that they're children for dozens, uh, even a couple, a few hundred years. Um, but, uh, but then once they reach maturity, once they reach marriageable age, right around, you know, 20, uh, 20 to 24 was when then they kind of settle into their mature years as elves. And now they're only aging at the full 144. That was his, uh, his idea before. And, I can see that. I have to admit that even before we begin, um, uh, that even before we begin, there's, I find my own um, suspension of disbelief beginning to be challenged here, right? I, the 144 to 1 ratio, I've done, even the, like, you know, you want to tell me that elves are pregnant for, you know, 115 years or whatever it was. Uh, okay. I mean, I'm ready. I'm ready to believe that. Right. Um, because elves are just different. Right. Um, uh, but this is a kind of difference, right? This shift in pace, um, is harder for me to kind of understand conceptually. Um, but here's the thing that I keep coming back to. It's not that it's harder. Like, if you leave, if you drop the numbers, right, or drop the ratios, drop the math, right, and just give me the numbers, right, just tell me what the numbers are. You just told me, okay, so uh, elves take three hundred and fifty years to mature, right? You just said that. Just start there, right? I'd have been like, okay, all right, um, fine. Elves take three hundred and fifty years to mature, and then after that. They live for thousands of years, more or less unchanged physically. I'd have been like, okay, sure, fine. That sounds just fine, right? Um, so where is my problem exactly? Where do I find the challenge to my, you know, suspension of disbelief? And the answer is that concept of like the change in ratio. It's all about the ratio, right? Uh, Tolkien, we've seen Tolkien doing this from the beginning. We were noticing this pattern from the very earliest chapters that throughout he was never willing to leave mortal equivalents behind, right? Um, even when he was really digging into um, the elvish culture, elvish physiology, elvish uh, psychology, um, you know, the way that they grow, mature, marry, have children, all that stuff, right? When he was getting into the details of all those things and doing this kind of in-depth world building that he hadn't done for elves prior to this uh, period of his career, um, he was still persistently <laughs> monkeying with the math to make it come out to be similar to mortal spans, right? Like it was all about making marriageable age for elves equal to 20, right? You know, which is like 
more or less like a you know human marriageable age. Apparently, Tolkien's humans get married pretty late, um, as we can see in the events of the Lord of the Rings for sure. Um, uh, hello, Theodred, uh, Mister Unmarried and Childless, Irresponsible Theodred. But anyway, um, uh, so yeah, so there's. Um, uh, um, uh, yeah. So anyhow, I, um, if increasingly as Tolkien's, uh, you know, kind of tinkering with his math and his ratios continues, as we'll see throughout our class today, um, I find that this seems to me to be more and more what, where I keep having the problem, Right. And where I just want us to, so I'm just going to start off by saying, if I were reading Tolkien's notes when he were alive, and he were, which is unlikely, and he were asking my opinion, which is less likely, um, what I would have told him would have been, you know, this would all make perfect sense, and you'd have a lot fewer problems if you just let that go, right? Like, just, just make just be okay with the numbers by themselves, right? Instead of trying to make the ratios come out to 20, right? Age 20, just lean into the elvish years on their own, right? Um, but he seems to, he just staunchly refuses to do that. Um, and this by itself seems to me an interesting thing. Um, and my suspicion I mean, if I if I have to kind of interpret that, like, what is what seems to be the principle that he won't let go of there? Like, why does he insist on continuing uh, to think in terms of ratio of elf years to mortal years? Um, I it seems to me to be about making elves. I don't want to. Uh, relatable. Uh, that word is one of my pet peeves. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, something along those lines, basically. Like on the one hand, he is totally fine leaning into how elves are different, right? I mean, a lot of his elvish world building really comes down to elves are different from humans, right? Um, and here are the ways in which they are unlike us, but he won't just let them fly apart, right? He won't let them just separate. He seems to want to maintain that anchor. We, um, uh, They're different, but not totally different, right? There are parallels between them. There are likenesses between elves and men that he won't let go of and that he continues to insist on, even though, as we'll see, it causes him more and more problems uh, and makes him do more and more and more math uh, to try to work out those problems as we go along. Um, so <clears throat> anyway, okay, let's uh, let's dig into it here. So here's where he first begins to really start thinking of uh, uh, some, um, uh, you know, changing some things up here. The Quendian rate originally corresponded to the Valian, and so it and it so remained in Amman. But by each actor choice, which, as it were, allied the Quendi or any group of them more closely with Arda Mard, the rate of growth became quicker, for the tendency towards physical decay was increased. Okay, so let's 
pause there for a second. By him saying the Quendi being allied, the Quendi or any group of them, being allied more closely with Arda Mart. What, what does that mean exactly? What does it mean that they're allied more closely with Arda Mart? Um, my understanding of that is that what he means there is as the Quendi became more fallen, right? Which I know, like, when you're used to thinking in Christian terms about the fall of man, to say more fallen kind of sounds like saying someone is more pregnant, right? Um, I mean, either you're fallen or you're not fallen, right? Um, but I think that some that uh, imagining their, like, fallenness, their moral corruption um, as really on a spectrum, right? Um, remember, they were never... They, they were not fallen in the same way. We we've talked about this. They're not fallen in the same way um, that man has fallen according to Catholic uh, uh, doctrine. But they're not unfallen either. They're not like what Catholic, Catholic doctrine te- teaches about unfallen man or about the unfallen angels. Um, they're like neither one of those groups. Um, they have moral corruption. They can sin and do sin, but they don't have the same uh, the same kind of tendency to sin, that they're under no curse. Well, they were under no curse until, you know, they get put under a curse. But um, but that's exactly what he's talking about, right? That's, I mean, certainly the doom of Mandos is a moment when they, ha- the Noldor, have uh, taken a big step into closer alliance with Arda Mard. They themselves are Mard. Remember that uh, word, right, marring, being used to Feanor himself when Manwe is, is uh, you know, lamenting over the marring of Feanor um, uh, right after the whole, you know, incident happened, right after the darkening. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, yeah. So, um, so it, the... This uh, allegiance, you know, this close connect, closer connection with Artemard. Um, another metaphor, maybe as their own, as they get uh, into closer and closer re- uh, resonance with Artemard, right? The marring of Arda always impacted them because they're made of Arda stuff, and it is therefore marred, right? Um, it is possible for them to sin. They are not perfect. They are not sinless. Um, but they get more and more in tune with Artemard, right? As they themselves make worse and worse choices uh, and come more and more sort of in line with the will of Morgoth, right? Yeah, Michael, I think affinity would seem to me a slightly better metaphor than alliance uh, that he uses there, but um, allied is his word, Um so yeah, yeah, um, Mike. And but Michael, I don't think it's about it's merely about generations. I don't think that's merely an inevitable um, decline. I don't think so. I don't think it's an an, an inevitable decline. Um, and we'll see. We'll see uh, some evidence. I think. Uh, Michael, of that right away. Let's keep reading. It is said that the Avari quickened to a hundred to one as soon as the Eldar had departed. That the Nandor did likewise as soon as they forsook the march. That the Sindar did so also when they chose to remain on the western shores. And that finally the exiled Noldor were quickened in the same way as soon as they left Amon, 
or rather, as soon as the doom of Mandos was spoken, and they persisted in their rebellion. So you can see it's not about generations, right? It's not about, uh, you know, which makes a kind of sense, right? I mean, if their stuff is made of uh, the stuff of Arda, you know, you might think like you're kind of like with every, you know, uh, every begetting of a new child, you're kind of compounding the, you know, the, the, the marred stuff, right? Until you, you know, your, your later generations are, you know, they've, uh, uh, you know, distilled more of the marring, right? Whatever, whatever kind of that is. But that's, um, that's, that's definitely not the case. It's definitely not the case. Uh, it's clearly moral. You can see it linked to their choices, right? As soon as the Avari choose not to go, straight down to 100 to 1, right? And it had, you know, Nandor, Sindar, as soon as they leave the march, right down to 100 to 1. Noldor, Doom of Mandos, they persist in their rebellion, straight down to 100 to 1, which means, by the way, Finarfin is okay, right? Finarfin is still at 144 to 1, right? In all the earlier legends, therefore, the rate of 100 to 1 can be used to determine approximately the age of any of the Eldar in human terms, except while they were in Amon, where it is 144 to 1. So you've got to do a conversion, right? You know, the, 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 the number of years that they spent in Amon has to be calculated at 144 to 1, but then when they get across to the other side, um, or after the Doom of Mandos, rather, it becomes 100 to 1. So with a Noldor, you gotta, you, you got to think that way. Um, and of course, this becomes, this becomes like a, you know, a, a like a pre-algebra word problem, right? Um, in fact, this would make an awesome pre-algebra word problem. In fact, I dare any math teachers who are listening to this to use this as a pre-algebra word problem uh, in a, uh, a homework set for students. They'd love it. Um, but, um, okay. In all the earlier region, legends, okay, I already said that. It is said that after the fall of Sauron and the beginning of the Fourth Age and the Dominion of Men, those of the elves who still lingered in Middle-earth were again quickened to a rate of about 72 to 1, or in these latter days, to 48 to 1. Okay. Um, uh, so, all right. Um, this has continued. At the When the dominion of men comes in, things change again, and now elves are quickened, their aging rate is quickened to a rate of about 72 to 1. Um, I think, by the way, I believe that he puts um, uh, <laughs> David Michael Roberts on uh, Twitch says, as a mathematician, I would implore people to not use this as a word problem. <laughs> uh, I understand. I understand. Um, anyway, I think the reason he uses the word quick, he puts the word quickened in quotation marks here. My, my, my uh, guess, actually, is I think that he is conscious of the pun, right? Because, of course, the word quickening um, means to make alive. Like, quick, you know, the, the old use of the word quick, um, it's a synonym of life. Like, it's, you know, the quick and the dead are the two categories. Like, if you're, 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 you're either quick uh, or you're dead. Um, uh, so it meant alive. So for something to be quickened in the old sense meant that it is being made alive, or being enlivened, right? Um, so um, uh, that would seem to have he, that 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 sort of traditional use of the word quicken 
uh, quick or quickened, um, would seem to be almost exactly the opposite of the way that he's using it here, right? Um, the rate of growth, you know, the rate of aging is quickened. It, it gets quicker, uh, right? Um, but they themselves are de-quickening, right? They're dying faster, right? The Roa is uh, is decaying faster. <clears throat> so I, my, my suspicion is that he put it in quotation marks because he was kind of aware that it was uh, a sort of ironic word to use uh, in this uh, in this context. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, um, all right, several questions here. Uh, Michael and Greg are thinking along very similar lines. Hang on a second. Let me come back to that in a second. Um, yeah, good. Devorah, you were, I missed your question, but yes, you were pointing out exactly that same thing. The irony of his use of quickened there. Absolutely. Um, Amy, you had asked, is Valinor not also part of Arda Mard? No, not sort of. Yeah, it's complicated. Um, uh, is Arda Mard even over there? Yeah, but like in the bubble, which remember there's literally a bubble now, right? There's a dome, the dome of Varda, um, I, I, you know, which is why you could have tree light in there um, uh, and uh, uh, and not, you know, just have the sun and moon messing things up all the time. Um, yeah, so when you... Um, um, Amy, this was an issue. Uh, I mean, you may remember this was an issue that came up in um, the in Morgoth's ring, right? Um, that no, like the the marring of Arda is um, uh, sort of pushed back. Like uh, the, Valinor has been like kind of sorta purified of the marring. It's a little vague. It's a little vague how it works. But remember that the marring comes from Melkor, um, and so the um, the kind of confinement uh, of the, you know, the, the, the Valar kind of fording up there uh, in Valinor. Um, it was not just, they were not... The fortification of Valinor is like an outward expression in a sense, right? I mean, if you think about it, they're not super worried about Melkor, once he returns to Middle-earth, Melkor's physical invasion, Right. Um, I mean, he never gets a Navy or an Air Force. He gets an Air Force at the very last second, right? Um, but until the very last second, he never has either a Navy or an Air Force, right? Um, Valinor is in no danger. Um, but more importantly, it's like the shadow itself. It's the marring of Arda that they're kind of keeping at bay, in a sense. I'm like wandering onto really dubious metaphysical uh, ground here and talking about this this way. But suffice to say, like this was a matter of discussion among the Valar in those in those um, uh, those discussions that we were looking at in Morgoth's ring when they were having debates mostly surrounding the Finway and Muriel, the thorny Finway and Muriel issue. Um, And that was one of the questions, like, these elves have brought corruption into Valinor, and that's not okay, right? Because Valinor was unmarred before that. But it's part of Arda, so how does that work? Um, But anyway, yeah, things are kind of retained in a state of purity, uh, in Valinor, it really is the blessed realm uh, in that way. Um, 
even though the blessing comes from those who are in it and not from the uh, not from the realm itself. Remember, it's not that the the with the whole Numenorean story, it's not that the blessed realm gives eternal life. It's you know immortality. It's that it's it is blessed because the immortals live there, right? Um, but um, anyway, uh, so Amy um, is Valinor not a, a part of Artemard? Not exactly, but it's complicated, is, I guess, how I would answer that. Um, but getting back to Mary's question, um, what about those who die in return from Mandos? Um, well, those that die and return from Mandos, um, so long as they stay in Valinor, would be at 144 to 1, I'd think, right? Um, I mean, does Hroa Mark II uh, corrupt fast, like, you know, decay? faster um you know does it, does it work the same is it is it is it an upgrade i don't, i'm not sure about that you know we haven't seen anything about that yet um but in as much as when they return from mandos they return to valinor it would be at 144 to 1 which of course mary would lead to the perfectly logical follow-up question what about gorfindel right at what rate inquiring minds want to know right at the time of the lord of the rings at what age uh, at what rate in ratio to mortal years, is Glorfindel aging? Um, and I think the answer is clearly 100 to 1. 100 to 1, because he's returned to Middle-earth. Um, which leads to Michael and Greg's excellent questions. Michael was saying, so, uh, making the choice to stay in Middle-earth, their true home, given by Iluvatar, seems like a punishment compared with going wrongly into the West. And, and Greg asked almost exactly the same question, that it sounds like a punishment, but if the Valar were wrong to have brought them and the elves were meant to have stayed in Middle-earth, wouldn't they have had longer lives by staying in Middle-earth? Um, no, apparently, right? So there are two ways that I would approach answering this question. <laughs> but before I take either of those approaches, I would insist upon the fact that I have no idea what I'm talking about. Right? This is me guessing and speculating based on what we've read. So, uh, uh, you know, disclaimer, your guess is as good as mine. But uh, my, what my guess would be um, is to, there are two things that Tolkien seems to correlate with this quickening of aging. One is moral choice, right? And therefore, Michael and Greg, punishment, like you were, um, like you were describing, right? Uh, exactly like you said. Uh, now, is there a way in which that would make sense, even if Iluvatar had intended the elves to stay in Middle-earth? Potentially, yes. I think... I think I can square that particular circle, right? And I think my answer would be the Valar might be misguided to bring them to Valinor. That might not be the right plan or the the right move for them. But that doesn't make the elves who sort of rebel against them and choose to stay in the right, right? Or rather... It's not that their being in Middle-earth is itself intrinsically a bad action, but what were their motives for choosing? It's about their choices, right? What were their motives for choosing it? Um, if upon seeing the glory of Orome, 
right? They decide, I want no part of that. I reject the light in the West. Well, even if Middle-earth is where you're meant to be, that's a bad call, right? That's, that's, that's not a good look, right? Um, if you are putting yourself to any extent, really, in rebellion against the Valar, that's, I mean, misguided they may be, right? This might be a bad idea. The West, the marching to the West might ultimately, at the end of the day, be a bad idea on the part of the Valar, but this, that doesn't make, um, that doesn't make them bad or wrong, right? Um, it's, um, it's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, uh, I think it has, and Michael, I, I hear you. Michael is making an excellent counter argument, um, uh, saying, how is it a rebellion if it was an open invitation and not a command? I can't square punishing them for choosing to stay in their own land uh, when given a free will choice. Um, I, I hear you. I hear you. Um, and you may well be right about that. I, I, I'm saying I think I can make it work depending on why they chose to stay. Um, because it's all about the, like the internal moral movement there. Right. Um, what, what exactly, what transactions actually occurring there? If their response is, Hey, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. Like this sounds awesome. And really, I appreciate everything that you're doing, but I just love it here. And I think, um, all things considered, I'm going to stick around. Right. That's very different from, you know, uh, a choice to stay that would be motivated by, uh, you know, pride or envy or, um, uh, a fearfulness. Uh, you know, I mean, there are lots of different ways in which that choice to stay could be, uh, sort of morally tainted. Right. Um, because at the end of the day, uh, it's about the choice, uh, not about like the actual action itself. But Michael, I, I, I hear you. And I think that you may well be right. So here's the, let me go to plan B, Michael, which you might find more convincing. I don't know. Um, and, uh, uh, Senalicia, I agree, uh, in Twitch there that it would kind of sound like Orame damned them just by showing up. Um, yeah, that's a little awkward, isn't it? Um, I still think in some sense I might be okay with that, but, um, uh, but I agree. It's awkward. So here's my other, my other reading. My other reading is, um, <sighs> that it's about Middle Earth itself. I can't explain. Okay, no, let me just say at the beginning, there's a thing I can't explain in this reading that this reading doesn't fit with. So, but I'll, I'll give it first, and then I'll give the exception. Um, we see lots of evidence through all of Tolkien's early stuff, all of his initial mythic concepts of the legendaria, from the Book of Lost Tales forward, that there is just something different about Middle-earth, the air of Middle-earth, which is both required for the elves. That's why in the early legends they live where they do, in the Calakiria, um, um, by that why that gap is left in the mountains, 
right? Um, and the elves live right there in the gap of the mountains. It's not just because they like the beach, right? They're there because the air from Middle-earth can get to them. If they lived insulated, now, there wasn't a bubble in those days. Now they're literally in a bubble, and it's apparently okay over there. Um, but in the old days, that, that concept of the air of Middle-earth that was like wafting across the sea, which they had to breathe, at least occasionally, it was necessary for them, right? And yet, the air of Middle-earth also had the effect of aging them more quickly, right? Of, uh, of quickening their fading. Um, he wasn't thinking in terms of numerical ratios for aging in those days, but he was thinking about the fading and the diminishment of the elves, which was a result of being in Middle-earth. It didn't seem to be necessarily attached to, uh, uh, like, their choices, you know, like, like you know, punishment, for their sins. Um, so, if we were to imagine that the Middle-earth default is 100 to 1, age ratio, right? Aging ratio, I should say. Um, but the Valar are not, uh, are not dooming them to a quicker rate, but are granting them a, 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 a slower rate, right? So it's, a, it's, not a, it's not a punishment, it's a reward, or you know, a, anyway, a positive side effect, right? Um, if we think about it that way, that would almost work. It would almost work. So, like, that's why when the those who split off on the way drop back to 100 to 1, because they're dropping back to Middle-earth normal, right? They're dropping back to Middle-earth normal, whereas those who remain in the company of Orome and under the direct blessing of the Valar uh, stretch out to 144 um, to 1, Right? Um, and then, of course, when they leave that blessing, right, when they turn away from that blessing, obviously, they drop back to 100 to 1, no problem. Um, as I said, there's a problem with this. And the problem is, then why were they 144 to 1 before Orame showed up? And I have no answer to that question. Unless we would just think in terms of like, well, maybe it's because, you know, uh, wait, what was it? Oh, yeah, because, you know, they were when in their very first you know, vigor of their awakening, it was 144 to 1, um, and then it was dropping down, it was totally dropping down to 100 to 1 anyway, right? But then when Orame shows up, it was like, um, you know, putting a freeze on that, which is kind of one way of thinking about what the Valar do, right? Um, restoring them to the vigor of their, um, you know, the, the strength of their first awakening, maintaining them at that level, it's kind of weak, but um, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, right, now, Stephen says, okay, so Middle-earth is marred. The Valar should have fixed that, but instead they just isolated Valinor from it. If they had fixed it, then the elves would have become been good to stay. But because they didn't, heading to Valinor rather than Middle-earth is the right call. For the elves, I mean, if you're interested in a 144 to 1 ratio in your aging, right, uh, then it's clearly, you know, uh, so if you're kind of min-maxing as far as your Hoa is concerned, then yep, absolutely. Um, but yeah, something like that, Stephen. I mean, if we see it as a, um, because that does seem to be one way to, um, one way to model, essentially, the difference between Middle-earth and Valinor, right? Um you have uh, Arda uh, Mard, right? Default Arda Mard in Middle-earth. And then you have Arda 
in which the marring is suspended in some sense, right, by the presence of the Valar and the influence of the Valar. Um, but, um, yeah, so, I don't know. <laughs> That's the best I got. <laughs> That's the best I got for the explanation here. Um, but, um, okay. Now, things in Middle-earth accelerate when the Dominion of Men comes in. Right, so they drop down to seventy-two to one, or in these late later days, in these latter days. So, by these latter days, what does he mean? Uh, he means the twentieth century, right? So the elves who are still around in Middle Earth, uh, in the the twentieth century, were down to forty-eight to one. Right. I wonder if they've dropped down to 36 to 1 yet in the 21st century. Not really sure. Um, but, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, yeah, here in the Seventh Age. Exactly, Bruce. Um, exactly. Yeah, so um, remember, Stephen, what happens when, when elves get elderly... They don't look old, they get invisible, right? I mean, that's what happens. You get all transparent and your hoa gets absorbed into your fea. Um, that's, what they, that's what they look like. So if you're looking around for the elves who are still lingering about and aging at the uh, uh, enormously quick rate of 48 to 1, um, don't, because you, you, won't, you won't see them. Um, you might encounter them, potentially, in some way. Uh, but um, but you're not going to see them because their hoa are gone. Anyway, okay. That was a little bit longer than I meant to spend on the first slide. <laughs> Let's keep going. So I'm going to go through these relatively quickly. Um, he, having adopted this idea of the shift to 100 to 1 in Middle-earth, he needs to playtest it. He needs to work it out, right? So... As always, he chooses some Silmarillion folks and some Lord of the Rings folks to make sure that this is going to work, right? So, uh, Celebrian was born, it seems, early in the Second Age, when Galadriel refused to turn to Eresea and passed over the mountains, probably Second Age 300. At her wedding with Elrond, Calibrian, therefore, she would be 3,441 minus 300, plus 100, equals 3,241 years old, or 32. A reasonable age. right? So remember, we're dividing by 100 here, so she's technically the equivalent of 32.41 years old, right? But who's counting? <clears throat> Maybe we should do it out to, you know, 138 decimal places just to make sure. A reasonable age, and further to be explained by the fact that her marriage was postponed by the War of the Last Alliance and the preceding troubles in Eriador. At her departure from Middle-earth in Third Age 2509, she was 3,141 plus 2509 equals 5,650 years old, or 56. Okay, so Calabrian was the human equivalent of 56 years old um, when she went overseas, right, after her uh, very bad experience. And, uh, um, and, uh, uh, and, and went overseas. So again, so notice what he's doing here. He's story checking his math, right? Does this work? I need to story check it. So, okay, Calabrian turns out to be 
32 when she got married. That'll work. It's a little older than the normal marrying age, but, 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 but explicable in terms of the world building and the story that he's already done, right? So, okay. Calabrian checks out. Arwen. She was born, according to the Lord of the Rings, in Third Age 241. She was married to Aragorn in Third Age 3019. She was then 2,778 years old, or in human terms, nearly 28. This, in Elvish terms, is a very suitable age. This is working out great. This 100 to 1 thing is, uh, is, 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 is working out a treat. You remember, we did this math for Arwen before. Right? Remember, we anticipated Tolkien in doing some of this playtesting, right? And when he was on the straight-up 144 to 1 ratio, remember that Arwen turned out to be, um, remember the, you know, my joke about Aragorn robbing the cradle, right? I mean, she was like a little bit younger than marriageable age. So notice, a side effect of his shift here, he's fixed that problem. Look at that. Now she's, uh, she's 27. Fine. Um... Her wedding was in any case inevitably postponed by the War of the Ring and the preceding Troubles. You, got, you, got, you have to extend the preceding Troubles pretty far back to make it significant in the 100 to 1. The War of the Ring was a, uh, a pretty small uh, chunk of, a, of the 100 to 1 ratio, right? Um, but anyway, you know, if we, 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 we date the Troubles back to, um, I don't know when exactly we would date the Troubles back to precisely the... Uh, yeah, not quite sure about that. But anyway, whatever. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. She's only, she, she's, she's 27. Also, in 2951, when Aragorn first met her, she was 2,710 or 27, whereas he was then 20. He had yet to overtake her, which in this case was desirable, since she was to become mortal in his degree. In 2980, when they plighted their troth in Lorien, she was very little older, but he was 49. Right? So, okay, so... Uh, he was 20. She was the equivalent of 27, you know, 2,700 years old. Uh, so she was a little bit older, but, you know, it wasn't like ridiculous, you know, as if it were a 2,690 year gap or something like that. No, no, no. She was the equivalent of 27. He was 20. So fine. Now, by the way, you see already one of the functions of him sticking to these ratios, right? Of the, his constantly uh, translating, mathematically translating elf ages into human ages, right? Because he wants not only us to connect to these characters as sort of characters that are in some sense operating on the same scale that we do, right? But also for them to be matching with each other in some way. So yeah, by the time, you know, so when they get engaged on Karen Amroth, Right. Aragorn is 49 and she's, you know, uh, 27 and a little bit more. Right. Um, OK. All right. Fine. Fine. Um, and Cecilia, yes, he does, for the most part, use women as examples, except for Maeglin and Elrond. And for very good reason. Right. Um, because they're the ones that where it is most important that their ages work out for childbearing purposes, right? Um, the childbearing age for the men is a little more flexible, right? So there's a, the, it's a, the, um, the genealogies are more forgiving, right? When it comes to the men, but, um, the, I, 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 I mean the timelines, right? You know, the genealogies in the combination of genealogies and timelines. Um, but if, uh, if you've got a woman who is like the equivalent of 10 years old, 
right? At the time when she's supposed to be, according to the tale of years, having a baby, we there are problems in the system, right? So when he's checking his math, he does tend uh, to look at women uh, primarily, and I'm pretty sure that's why. Even those like... Um, uh, um, what's her name? Finduilis, uh, right? Uh, Turin's non-girlfriend, um, who um, who doesn't get to the childbearing stage of things, right? But still, she's still of marriageable age. She's still keen to marry Turin, right? And so, therefore, it matters. It matters that she and Turin should be of compatible marrying age when that moment comes. So again, that's another kind of checkpoint um, that things need to things need to line up. Um, okay, all right, anyway, keep going. Now Aragorn was born in Third Age 2931, but lived until Fourth Age 100, and was then of full age, but not yet becoming senile. His years were then 190. He was the last of the Numenorians, and his span was equal to the kings of men of old, as is said, thrice that of ordinary men. Actually, his rate was probably rather five to two than three to one, so that he was at his wedding in the third age, in uh, third age uh, 3019, in years 88, in age 35, and at death in years, in, uh, in years 190, in age 75. The full Numenorean rate would make him 29 at his wedding and 63 at his death, right? So you know what he's sorting out here, right? Um... He's now doing the math and realizing, well, crap, Aragorn didn't live long enough, right? Because if three to one is the Numenorean ratio, right? If three to one is the Numenorean ratio, then yeah, he was only 190 when he died. So yeah, he died of old age at the equivalent of 63? Well, he died too young. Remember that, wasn't it like, um, wasn't it Gimilchad, uh, the father of our Pharisee? who died at, like, the age of 190, which was accounted an early death for one of the House of Elros, right? Right around that that time. Um, you know, died uh, comparatively, died at Numenorean young, right? Or at least House of Elros young. Um, and so here's Aragorn popping off at the age of 190 uh, uh, when you'd think he would live longer. So that needs an explanation. Well, there are two options, right? Option number one would be to... Uh, change the dates, right? Make him live longer than fourth age 100, which you'd think would be easy enough to do uh, because the story was over, right? And the only thing that he said happened, like he could have he could have fudged that, right? But he doesn't seem to want to do that. Um, and this, I would say, seems to me to fit very well Tolkien's general tendency to take his published texts as a given, Right, that has to be worked around. Very rarely is he willing to just chuck out what was said there. We saw him willing to do that with some of the dates, um, because it was using a, a ten to one ratio. Right. Um, so, in, in in when 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 the extreme has been necessary, he's done it. Like with the the date of the beginning of the elves and the date of the the uh, the uh, arrival of men and that kind of thing. Right. Um, we saw him just pitching the dates. Uh, from the tale of years at that point. But something like this, he's going to be very reluctant, apparently, to just, you know, tack on another hundred years to Aragorn's life, right? It gives him another hundred years, then in Numenorean terms, at his death, he'd be 96. Okay, 
nice, respectable old age, right? Um, so just just cross out the one, put in a two, and say he died in four age 200, right? But he won't do it. He won't do it. So what does he do instead? Instead, he changes the ratio, right? Okay, so yes, he's the last of the Numenorians, but, you know, when we say last of the Numenorians, he's not like 100%. I mean, it's still been a long time, right? There's still been decline, even Aragorn, uh, who is, you know, a, a throwback, but he's not a perfect throwback, right? So it's close. His aging ratio is 5 to 2 instead of 3 to 1. Re- re- real close, real close, right? But not quite the full Numenorean. You can't put the clock back, right? You can't go all the way back to Numenor that was. Be- and so he finds, what has he done? Clearly, he's done the math, right? He's done the math where he is uh, he's taken the ages of Aragorn and he's figured out at what ratio will they work out correctly, right? Will they work out to be where I want them to be? So that at his marriage, he needs to be a mature man, not just like barely a marriageable age, right? But a, but a, a mature, you know, seasoned adult at his marriage and then he needs to be old but not yet becoming senile at the time of his death. So, 35 and 88 work for him. So, 5 to 2. No problem. Okay. So, we're monkeying with... So again, But notice the trend here. The trend is we are changing the math to fit the story. The test is the story. The test is the published thing, right? The published story. So, notice now his explanation. It would appear that the grace, according to the Numenorians, was like that of Amon. It did not alter the human rate of growth to maturity, but postponed the decay of old age after that for a long while, until one knew inwardly, by a motion of the Thea, that the time had come to relinquish life in this world voluntarily. If one did not do so, but clung to life, senility would soon arise." If Aragorn had yielded to Arwen's entreaties, he would have become decrepit, at least in body, very soon. So, at the age of 88, well, real, like, equivalent age 88, actual age 190, Aragorn was still hale and strong. He would have looked much like he did at the time of the War of the Rings, right? Like the elves' extended period of apparent youth, right? Their aging, which does not... uh, you know, um, alter or corrupt. So again, Stephen, this gets back to your elderly elves question, right? There aren't, they don't get elderly, right? They're young, 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 and then invisible, <laughs> right? Rapidly be, I don't know what that, I mean, it wasn't an instantaneous, but they just wake up invisible one day, right? So there has to have been a process. And what would that look like? Like, what would it look like if you met an elf who is like fading, Right in the rapid process of becoming invisible, would they be partly visible? Would bits of them be invisible? I'm 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 joking, but I'm not joking. I literally don't know what that would look like. Um, but um, yeah, exactly. Uh, Katrina, is there a transparent stage? Is that what happens? Um, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Uh it's it's a it's 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 difficult. <laughs> Michael Dennis says his his headcanon says flickering. They're flickering elves. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um 
<laughs> Maybe. Yeah, Stephen, I was thinking of the duffel puds. It's not like the duffel puds waking up invisible. Uh, I, 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 I can't imagine that that's how it happened. Um, um, could it be, Chad, like Marty McFly in Back to the Future, where, like, your hand starts to become transparent? Maybe. Maybe that's, like, when you know it's your time, right? Oh, I can see through my right hand. It's uh, time to hit the havens, right, for sure. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, okay, anyway, let's keep going. Galadriel. She was born in Amman. At the exile, she was young and eager, just at or upon the threshold of maturity, probably in age about 20. So m- m- notice where he's, he starts with story, right? What was she like at the time of the exile? She was young, peppy, and full of vinegar uh, at the time of the exile, right? So she has to have been, she was an adult, but just an adult, right? So she was age equivalent 20 at the time of the rebellion. She must therefore have been in years about 20 times 144 because Amon, right, equals 2,880. She became acquainted with Celeborn, a Sindarin prince and kinsman of Thingol, in Beleriand. But there were few marriages or childbirths among the Eldar during the war with Angband, which, though it occupied 590 years, was to the Elder in an aging time only a matter of some six-year equivalents. Remember, 101 in Middle-earth now, right? Uh, so 5.9 years is how much time goes by from the entirety of the Doom of Mandos all the way up to uh, the War of Wrath, right? Only takes 5.9 aging years for adults, Right. Um, so uh, so Galadriel had uh, she didn't that she and Celeborn didn't get married until after the end of the war, he says. Right. She probably married Celeborn soon after the overthrow of Morgoth after the War of Wrath. Right. So they didn't wait that long. The equivalent of six aging years, a mere six centuries. Right. They'd barely become good friends by then. She probably married Celeborn soon after the overthrow of Morgoth, and when she, it appears, because of her love for Celeborn, who would not leave Middle-earth yet, declined to return west to Erisea, they passed together over the mountains of Loon into Eriador. So, Galadriel stays in Middle-earth in part for love of Celeborn, who doesn't want to leave. Which, of course, helps to make sense of why Celeborn doesn't leave with her, right? Um, he still doesn't want to leave, right? But, um, okay, yeah. Um, Bruce, I can't remember from the timelines, and as I recall, the timelines were not particularly clear in the first place, in the Galadriel and Celeborn section of Unfinished Tales, the idea of Galadriel and Celeborn meeting in Amon and sailing east on their own, as I recall, that was the latest version of his story. So it might be not that he's rejected it at this point, Bruce, but that he hasn't gotten there yet. Um, I think we're not dealing with Goadriel, um, you know, version 4.0 yet. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Uh, where was I? Um, oh, footnote. Um, declined to turn, return west to Erisea, Tolkien's footnote. There may have also been an element of pride in her decision, for she was a princess of the Noldor, who had lived in Amon itself. Erisea seemed only a second best, right? Why should she go back to that dump, right? I mean, come on, right? She's, uh, she's from Tyrion, right? So, I mean, maybe if they were inviting her to come back to her hometown, she'd have been tempted, right? But 
come back and live in the suburbs, right? She's not going to slum it in Arisea. Um, I'm exaggerating, but that is what he's suggesting, right? That there was an element of pride. So, But notice, like, before this, I had rather thought um, the pride thing was pretty much 100% of the reason of her not wanting to go back. So the mere fact that she is, he is now making it, um, he's now characterizing it as primarily for love of Celeborn, almost a sacrificial act on her part. I shall not return into the West so I can stay here with you. It's like um, Luthien adjacent, right? It's not the Luthien choice. She's not choosing mortality, but it's, you know, a second cousin to Luthien's choice, right? She's going to stay in Middle-earth uh, out of love for Celeborn. And now he is relegating the element of pride um, to a secondary position at best. There may have been. It's possible. There was a certain degree of pride involved um, there. But anyway, okay. Uh, continuing, where was I? Right. She was then about 26 in age. Remember she was 20 when she arrived, right? Um and then she's aged six centuries, right? 100 to 1 ratio. So she's got aged six years. So she's now 26 age equivalents. For the years in Beleriand had been at the aging rate of 100 to 1. In second age 300 or thereabouts, so three life years later, she bore Calabrian in Eriador. She was then about 29. She lived through all the remainder of the second age to second age 3441, the end of it, and left Middle-earth in third age 3021. She was thus at that time in life years 20 plus all of that time divided by 100, uh, which is comes out to 70.5. So she's 90 and a half when she sails. And thus in elven terms, according to the time in which the fading of the Quendi was approaching, now passing the prime of her Hroa. So Galadriel's starting to get a little faint around the edges, right? There in Lothlorien. Um, yeah, yeah. So again, check mark. The 100 to 1 thing panning out beautifully, right? It's panning out beautifully. Um, so you see why he's done this, right? When we before were trying to explain the shift from 144 to 1 to 100 to 1, right, is it a punishment? Is, it, is the other a reward, right? All, all those kinds of questions. Um, I, I think we were kind of thinking of it backwards, in a sense, right? I don't think he changed the ratios because he thought that was fitting, right? Um, I think he changed the ratios to fit the story better. Just like he did with Aragorn, right? I think in Ar- with, with Aragorn's example, we can see a kind of a microcosm of it, right? Age 30 for marriage and age 63 for death doesn't track with Aragorn's story very well. So we can't do the full Numenorean 3 to 1 ratio. It's got to be 5 to 2, right? Because decline, right? Fine. But if we apply the 5 to 2 ratio things come out just right. Um, just as before, we already saw before that Arwen was a little underage when we did the 144 to 1 ratio, right? Didn't quite work out. Um, we were making jokes about Aragorn robbing the cradle, and Galadriel um, was also much younger, both when she bore Calabrian and when she 
um, uh, you know, at the end of the third age, right? And so having adjusted it back to 100 to 1, he's liking how these numbers are working out now, right? But of course, he's not going to just change the whole thing, right? And say like, okay, before I said 12 to 1 and that wasn't enough. Then I said 144 to 1 and that was cool, but it's just a little high, right? So if we trim it back to 100 to 1, it's perfect. No. No, because he likes 144 to 1. He likes the counting in base 12 thing, right? He's already he's established a whole myth about why they count in base 12. So he likes the base 12 thing. So he's going to stick so he's having his cake and eating it too, right? He's keeping the base 12, but he's trimming down the ratio to 100 to 1 in order to make the stories and the and the the tale of years all work out, right? Okay. All right. Cool. But there are still some problems, right? As can be seen, these calculations show that the events and dates of the Lord of the Rings are well fitted to elvish nature and are evidently, in the main, correctly reported, right? So this confirms that the tale of years is correct, right? But there are two points in which error appears probably of scribal origin. What a classic comment, right? It is stated in the Tale of Years that Elrond married Celebrian in, th in Third Age 100, and that his twin sons, Eladon and Elrohir, were born in Third Age 139, and Arwen in Third Age 241. This must be erroneous. For in Third Age 139, only 39 years, or in aging terms of the Eldar and the Half-Elven, two-fifths of a year had passed, since Elrond's wedding. This was impossible. Not only is this impossible, this is a scandal! Right? I mean... <laughs> I mean, applying his math here, um, this means that, uh, I, you know, I don't want to be indelicate or anything, but, um, you know... As I say in my subtitle here, did Galadriel hold the shotgun, right? I mean, apparently, uh, apparently Calabrian is already starting to show before the wedding, if you know what I mean, right? Um, so this will not do at all, right? Uh, the proper gestation period does not pass between the marriage and the birth, and this must be erroneous, right? So we cannot we cannot besmirch the wedding of Elrond uh, with scandal. So uh, no, no, that one just won't work. That one just won't work. So there are a few thorny issues here, right? And it's it's probably a scribal error. I mean, this kind of thing can happen all the time, um, you know. So um, I blame Findigil, King's writer, right? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so we got to fix this. All right. Um, <laughs> but there are bigger problems, right? And he goes on and he, 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 uh, he speculates about like how, how you need to fudge the dates in order to make it work. Right. So you can make it work, chalk it up to scribal error and we can survive that. But there is a bigger problem, a far bigger problem. There is one, uh, almost insoluble uh, uh, aging problem, and that is Maeglin. Maeglin is the big issue. Grave difficulty will be found in the chronology on the scales of 144 sun years in Amon equals one year of elf life, but 100 sun years in Beleriand equals one year. So he's like, this solves a lot of problems. He's loving this. 
but, there's a big but, for no elf not born in Amman would be of age to marry, though there might be numerous children, since the whole time approximately 590 years of the war against Morgoth was only equivalent to about six life years of the Eldar. That was real convenient when it came to Goadriel's marrying age, right? But it poses a problem. If only six life years are passing in the entirety of the first age, then... Um, there's an issue. One big glaring issue. Any marriageable Elda would then have to be at least 20 life years and therefore have been born 14 to 20 Valian years before Valian year 1500, when Beleriandic reckoning begins, i.e. Valian 11 to 15 years before the exile began. Again, nobody could be of marriageable age, could become of marriageable age during the war against Morgoth if they were not born in Amman. I mean, it's just mathematically impossible, right? Now notice him kind of scratching his chin here. It would on the whole be best to have no exilic children born in Beleriand coming into the tale. This is him saying, if I were writing this all right now, right? If I were starting again, like truly starting from scratch right now, I wouldn't have any children born during the exile. Right, Because it makes sense. I mean, that whole time was a time of war. And he said that the elves will postpone the, um, you know, the time of the children in a time of war and uncertainty. And that entire 600 years is uh, a time of war and uncertainty. Right? And it's only, at 100 to 1, it's only six life years of the Eldar. So it's not even a long delay. So yeah, if he were writing this stuff from scratch right now, he would solve this problem by saying, there are no children born during the exile. Next problem, right? But the case of Maeglin cannot be got round. The narrative makes it inevitable that he should have been born after the occupation of Gondolin in Beleriandic year 116. At the period of Tours coming to Gondolin, Beleriandic year 495, or wedding with Idril 502, he would, if born in, say, Beleriandic 120, which is like the earliest, right? If, uh, if it was Gondolin was settled in 116, the very earliest he can possibly get Maeglin born is four years later, right? So if he's born in 120, he'd only be 375 or 382 years old. But um, that means he's less than four. So Maeglin is now a very precocious and extremely creepy four-year-old, right? Um, uh, Mackinon, his cousin, uh, who is wanting to marry the strapping um, human warrior. So, yeah, <laughs> you're right, Edith. Talk about enfant terrible, right? Oh, my goodness. Whole new definition here. Um, so, right. This is absolutely impossible. So, what do we do? Okay, he comes up with a couple solutions. Solution one. Elves married late in Amman, usually. They became adult at life age 20, but that equals 20 Valian years equals 2880, but they remained very young and vigorous and youthful in mind and interests, so that often they did not wed until they were 200 life years old, or nearly that. Um, so, like, you know, that is when they're 28,800 sun years old, right? So... What is solution number one? Solution number one is that he's going to change the world building. He's keeping the math, 
right? He's keeping the math. He's keeping the story. Th these are the three things that are in conflict, right? You've got the mathematical equivalent. You've got the world building about like when elves marry and, and, you know, the elf year, you know, life years and stuff. And then you've got the story, right? The, the established narrative. Um, at least one of these three things has to give. The three of them can't all work together. So his first thing is he's thinking, maybe we change the world building. Now, I have to admit, I actually don't see how this solves the problem of Maeglin at all. Um, if elves marry late. How does that help? I don't see how it helps. But anyway. But solution number two. But under the sun, outside of Varda's domes... All the Eldar had quickened in growth, in growth mind, though they had not lost at first much of their steadfastness and vigor and health at that point. So, yes, their aging quickens from 144 to 1 to 100 to 1, but there is an even more radical impact on their growth in childhood before they become adults. They therefore reached maturity ten times quicker, or became twenty when only two hundred sun years old. They then maintained this vigor, aging only at the rate of a hundred years equals one life year. Okay, so the effect of coming to Middle Earth doesn't just change your aging from 144 to 1 to 100 to 1. No, no, no. It increases growth, early growth, childhood growth to a 10 to 1 ratio, back to the old 10 to 1, right? And notice that's not a coincidence, because Maeglin's age was originally calculated, like he established that time frame. The time frame given in the tale of years, the dates in the tale of years, are based on the annals that he wrote, which whose dates are based on that 10 to 1 ratio, which he rejected at the very beginning of this whole book, right? Um... But we can make a return, but only temporarily, right? Only temporarily. Um, okay. Uh, Eric119, I think you're very correct. One and two here are not different solutions, but parts of the same solution. Yes. Okay, so first, we can make flexible the marriageable and childbearing age of elves. And also under the sun, in Middle-earth, their growth rate is super fast. So, an elvish baby born, like it might be to a Noldor and a Dark Elf, in theory, would grow to marriageable age in only 200 years, problem solved. Okay. Okay. Um, so, he does the math. Tuor was born in 492. He came to Gondolin in 495, being then 23. He married Idril in 502, being then 30. To look on him with any favor, Idril must have been young, about the equivalent of 22 or 23 in 495. To reach 22... So, uh, if she had been way older than him, if she had been like 30 or 50 or 60 life years old, right, she would not have given the time of day to this 23-year-old twerp. Right, even if a strapping studly twerp, right? Um, but if she's you know young and of marriage, you know if she's of if she's around the same age, life age as he is, well then okay, we can see the temptation. 
Um, okay, so to reach 22 in 495, she must have borne it. So here's your, here's your, here, this is it, by the way. He's uh, handing, so you pre-algebra teachers, there's your word problem right here, right? Um, if uh, Idril is 22 years old, life years old, in Baleariandic year 495, under the 10 to 1 and 100 to 1 and 144 to 1 growth ratios, when was she born? Well, to reach 22 in 495, she must have born in Beleriand, have taken 200 years to become 20, and then 400 years to become 22. Right? So, again, if she'd been born in Beleriand, she, she would have aged to 20 at 200 years, but the next two years would have taken 100 years each. Right? So, 400 total years to get to the age of 22. And what year is it? 495. Okay. Um, so, uh, it would have been a total of 600 years, right? Um, his math is wrong there. Isn't his math wrong? Yes. It's only 100 to 1. Ronald, not 200 to 1. It's only, it only take 200 years to get to 22 from 20. He made a mistake there, didn't he? It's not just me. He made a mistake there? He wants to say she has to have been alive for 600 years of the sun. Um, which would mean that QED, she cannot have been born in Beleriand. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I think he messed up there. But still, it's fine. He was pulling... Remember, he's, he's, he's estimating anyway. 22, 23. 24 is just as good, right? 24 is just as good. Um... So, yeah, to get to 24, it would take 400 years. So let's call her 24, because we can do that, right? Why not? That would be 600 years. She cannot have been born in Beleriand. In fact, she was not, as her mother, Anaire, refused the exile, but Idril adhered to her father. If born in Amman, her 495 years in Beleriand equals about five years of her life. She must therefore have been 17 on entry into Beleriand and have been born in Valian year 1496 minus 17 equals 1479. Hang on a second, Ronald. I'm still questioning this. Let me do some math in my head here. Let's say she was 17 when she came into Beleriand. She's still in growth years. She's not aging at any 100 to 1 yet. She's still immature. She's still a child, an advanced child, admittedly. But she's um, not yet... If 20 is the magic year at which you, you shift from 10 to 1 to 100 to 1, right? She'd have shifted to 10 to 1 at age 17. So it only would have taken 30 years for her to get to 20, right? So it would have been Beleriandic year 30 when she turned 20. And then... She even to get to twenty four, she would still only have four hundred years. Oops! So she would have turned twenty four in four hundred and thirty. Oops! That's two math errors. Oh dear. Oh dear. So yeah, yeah. If she was seventeen, then she would have to be. Let's see, four thirty. So we got to age her another sixty five years. Well, it's still only point. It's only twenty four point six five years. What's Six, you know, what's seven months between eight months between friends, right? Uh, life months, right? So, um, 
it's it's all good. It's all good. She's still twenty four ish uh, when she uh, marries Tour, so it's fine. Um, <laughs> Kendall says, "Looks like Cradle Robbing runs in the family." <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, yeah. So she's a little older than he is, but it's uh, it's still pretty close. Um, and uh, he's past her by the time they get married, right? I mean, by the time it's five, you know, he's 30 by the year 502, right? And so, and she would still not yet be 25 um, in life years. So um, she's a little older than he, and then he passes her. It's all good. It still all works. It still all works, right? But um but what I love, so let's um, let's now forget the fact that he's made mathematical errors, right? And let's instead look at, let's assume for a moment that his math is correct, right? If his math is correct, then he is, he has proven that she cannot have been born in Beleriand, right? And then I love that parentheses. In fact, she was not, right? In other words, this checks the other box. Idril can't have been born here. Why? Because her mother didn't come into exile, right? Her mother stayed, and so therefore she has to have been born in Amman. And she must have been pretty young, but she can't have been like an infant, right? I don't think that, that you know, um, uh, what's his name? Turgon uh, was carrying a babe in arms away from her mother, right, um, at the time of the exile. Um, but... Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, anyhow. Now, again, we've talked about this before, but some of you will be saying, wait a second, that's not Turgon's story. Turgon's wife died in the crossing of the Hel Caraxa. In the published Silmarillion, that is true. Um, but we see this is apparently a story that he has changed uh, since this. Yeah, that was Elenwe, right? But when Elenwe was displaced by Anaire... The Vanyar, who stayed behind, when, like, apparently he swapped girlfriends with his cousin, right? Because Anaire used to be Finrod's girlfriend, right? Whom he did not marry because she didn't come with him into exile. Now Anaire is going to be Turgon's wife, who stays behind. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's awkward. It's awkward. Um, but again, he's decided on that story, right? Um, and so we, that parentheses is like a cheerful checkmark. It works. It works. Um, well, I mean, it would have worked if he had done the math correctly, but... Um, uh, but perhaps... <laughs> Sorry, Alyssa, I missed your comment before. Oh, that's classic. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it was back when I was saying that by the time um, Galadriel got to the end of the Third Age, she was getting a little uh, a little transparent around the edges, and Alyssa had said, maybe that's why you can see a star through her finger, right? It all tracks. Textual proof there, Alyssa. There you go. There you go. Um, anyway, okay. Well, let's move on. Okay. Look at him, but back to Maeglin, right? He's still working on the Maeglin story here. If Isfin was rebellious, Isfin equals Arathel, two alternate names. If Isfin was rebellious at the time of the departure of the Eldar over the sea, Valian year 1132, as it might be said, were a few of the Noldor also, 
then matters might be arranged so. Okay, so remember, so there are two alternatives. He's trying to solve the Miglin problem, right? He's, he's kind of looking at it again. This is how it would look, you know, with the, um, you know, Michael, as you say, with the classic trilemma, right, of the world building, the math, and the story, right, the, the established story, the published story. Here's what it looks like to change the story. We'll keep the math, we'll keep the world building, we'll change the story. Here, so here's what here's how that might look. We make uh, Arathel, Isvin, having rebellious thoughts at the time of the departure of the Eldar over the sea. As it might be said, there were a few of the Noldor also. Then matters might be arranged so. Eol was not a dark elf in the sense of being an Avar. One of those, in fact, existed in Beleriand, certainly not at so early an age. None of these, in fact, existed in Beleriand, certainly not at so early an age. So there are no Avari in Beleriand. So he's not a dark elf in that sense. Nor was he of the Teleri. All right, that's a sudden change. There were a few of the Noldor who were in, who in heart were Avari. See, Michael and Greg, what I'm coming back to here, like the whole... What matters is what's in your heart, not the actions that you perform. I'm just saying there's precedent for that kind of thinking. Anyway, okay. In his heart, he was an Avari. He had come on the journey, but in his secret heart, he was unwilling. But marched because all their people did. So he succumbed to peer pressure and went on the march, but really in his heart, he didn't want to go. Um, okay, Aeol was one of these. He did not wish for a month. Either he already knew and desired Isfin, like they met on the march, and persuaded her to remain behind, or she met him in Beleriand when she too had refused to go at the last minute and went wandering alone in the land. In that case, the birth of Maeglin could be anywhere about Valian year 1232 to, say, 1400. In other words, let's keep Arathel home, Right? We're ditching the Gondolin story as relates to Arathel, right? She doesn't have to be the sister of Turgon. She doesn't have to be gone from... She doesn't have to have anything to do with Gondolin, right? Now, we still have to get Maeglin to Gondolin at some point, but we can work that out later on, right? If she stayed behind, if she was like quasi-Avari, right? And she and Aeol too. So she and Aeol stay together. They're both Noldor, which changes Ael's character very significantly. They're both Noldor, but they stay behind at the last minute, uh, and then they get married. Well, Michael can be born any time now. That's easy, right? No problem at all. Okay. If born in Valian year 1232, by Valian year 1496, that is the date of the rebellion, Maeglin would have lived 264 Valian years times 144 sun years equals 38,000 years. Oh, man. Wait, forget pediatric Maeglin now, right? Oh, we got, we got to have... Maeglin can be an old dude. Well, old-ish, right, at this time. No problem. But this is obviously impossible, besides the fact that Turgon and Isfin were both born in Amon you see the existing story rising up in rebellion, right? In order to do this, like, he's he did this thought experiment. If we changed who Isfin was and made her do and she never even went to Valinor and everything, that's just fine. But then, like, he rebels against himself. But no! Isfin is Turgon's sister! And they were both born in Amman! 
It cannot be. The story must then be entirely altered, and Maiguan must also be born in Amon. Okay, let's try it again. Let's try it again. Let's take Ao over to Amon this time, right? Uh, so let's say that he was not dark at all, right? He was, in fact, a perfectly well-lit elf, and Maiguan was born in Valinor, uh, like Idril, and then came over, right? But wait, then why is he sinister? Okay, hang on. So his sin- if his father was a well-lit elf, right? His sinister character will then be accounted for by the fact that he and his mother and father were especially attracted by Melkor and grew to dislike Amon and their kin. So they were like rebelling before it was cool, right? Eol and Isfin had gotten fed up with Valinor before Feanor, right? They were ahead of the rebellion curve. They joined the host of Feanor, latecomer, this would explain Aeol's skill in smithcraft, and were estranged from their immediate kin. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, no, David, I don't think she was attracted by Melkor in that way, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay. Um, this is what it would look like to change the story. These are our two options. Right. If we stick with the math and we stick with the world building, one of these two, frankly unattractive options, has to be the way. Right. And there are big problems either way. Right. Or we could just fudge the math. Right. Or B. The age or growth scale must be altered. In Amon, in early ages, it was very slow. The Eldar then lived at valiant rate 144 to one, but also their youth lasted very long and they were engaged in many pursuits of absorbing interest so that they did not become mature or wed until aged over a hundred valiant years or even nearly two hundred. So this is the first part of that uh, solution that he was giving before. This does not apply, of course, to the first generation. E.g., Finway was born in Middle-earth sometime before valiant year 1085 when Orome found the Quendi, say about 1050. In 1132, he was therefore already 82, Valiant years old, and wedded Muriel somewhere about 1150, when he was 18 Valiant years old. That, uh, 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 sorry, 18 years later, uh, in other words, he was about 100. You see what he's doing right away, right? He's trying to solve two problems at once. Remember, he was had already started to wrestle with the, why do Finway and Muriel wait to get married until they arrive in Amman, right? Um, if they're getting married at age 20, right off, right? How can we explain that? Remember, his first explanation was Finway was born, was very young at the time, at the time when Orome came, right? He was all young and peppy and excited, and that's why he was chosen as one of the ambassadors, not because he was one of the senior elves, but because he was young, peppy, and vigorous, and um, raring for adventure, and that's why he went to Valinor. And having gone to Valinor before he got married, he was like, this place is great. I want to come here and start a family here. So forget about it. I want all Valinorian children because that's going to work out real well. So I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell uh, my girlfriend Muriel that we're going to we're going to we're going to wait for Valinor. And then we're going to remember that was the first solution to the why would they wait so long to get married question. Now, and this explains why. Remember my first reaction to the. Maybe they don't get married until one or even 200 years old. And I was like, how does that help solve the Maiglin problem? It doesn't, right? Tolkien is always thinking about uh, 
he, Tolkien is always thinking about multiple problems at once. He's not forgotten any of these problems. He's focused on the Maeglin problem right now. And yet, in the pro process of solving the Maeglin problem, he's also thinking, okay, hang on a second. Does this help me solve that other problem too? Does this help with the Finway problem? Um, and his answer is, yeah, okay. The 100 to 200 year marriageable age thing sometimes, you know, that's... um. That helps solve the fin. So let's do that, right? Let's change the growth rate and let's say let's in Valinor we extend the age of um, youth of childhood, right? So it's all good. But this slow growth was maintained in Amon under the domes of Varda, which of course remember the blessing of Varda or the the, the blessing of the Valar. That theory that the age the aging rate bumped up to 144 because of the blessing of the Valar, the positive blessing, rather than it shrinking to 100 as a punishment. So here he's leaning into something quite like that, right? This slow growth, the slow aging of childhood, this extended growth period um, only happens in Amon, right? The rate of growth under the sun soon quickened. For all periods relative to the narrative, it may be taken as 10 to 1, that is, from conception to maturity, the elvish Roa in Middle-earth only took ten times the period of men. But reaching maturity at twenty, they then remained in long-lasting vigor with little perceptible change, i.e. the aging rate was 144 to 1, or in Middle-earth, 100 to 1. Okay, so, yes, the... Uh, the fudging of the math, this is a much more... And, so, and notice how he's thinking about it in story terms. Does it work? Does it work mythologically, right? Does it work with the story? Yeah. Yeah, it can be made to work. It can be made to work. The aging thing works differently in Valinor. Why would it drop way down to 10 to 1? Because they've left the domes of Varda, right? And so outside of that um, sort of sterilized, morally sterilized um, little segment of Arda... Uh, sort of not exactly marred, um, then uh, once you leave there, they only go at 10 to 1, right? So, Maeglin, not a problem anymore, and we don't have to, um, we don't have to mess with his parents' story in the same way. Aeol can still be dark, and Isfin can still be Turgon's sister, and can still come from Gondolin, because we need to get Maeglin back to Gondolin anyway, so, yeah. This way we can stick with the story. But, now, we have to apply this again to the Third Age. Right? Now we've got to playtest this again, because now we've made a shift and, because remember, he was doing the aging at 100 to 1 all the way through. Like, when he was doing Calabrian, he was, he was measuring her age at 100 to 1 from birth. Right? Oh, boy, no, but now the first 20... So now we've got, we've, we've got to do... We, we, we've got to redo the math. Let's check the third age again. This will fit the, late, the, the later narrative fairly well, but will make characters such as Galadriel and Elrond rather older in the later ages. It, however, makes difficulties with Arwen and Aragorn. Oh, dear. All right, so let's revisit this. Thus, Galadriel was just mature, 20 life years at the exile, just like he said before. She was therefore 22 on entry into Beleriand, and then lived at a 100 to 1 rate. At the ruin of Beleriand, she was therefore about 28. Now, if Calabrian was born no earlier than Second Age 300, she was mature 200 life years in Second Age 500. Right? Remember the 10 to 1 growth years. By the end of the Second Age, she was then 29 
life years older. So by the end of the second age, she's 49 years old. Calabrian is. By third age 100, her wedding with Elrond, she was there for 50. Not impossible and explicable by the troublous times. We can just stretch to that, right? She's 50. It's, it's kind of old for, uh, you know, a Middle-earth elf to be getting married. But, you know, it, it, very troublous. The times were sure troublous, um, I guess. The Second Age was troublous. We had invasion. The Eriador was being invaded. It was awkward all over the place. So sure. Yeah, we don't want to get married during then. Um, but it's enough that he's actually thinking about bumping her back a little bit, right? We, 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 this, there, there might be some scribal, some retroactive scribal error coming into place here, right? If actually born much later, say 850 or so. So again, the, the tale of years gives her birth at second age 300, Calibrian. Um, but if we bump it back to 850, then she would have aged in 1050. And at the time of her wedding with Elrond, she would only have been 45. A little bit better, a little bit better. But Galadriel would be in second age 300, about 31. About 31 uh, life years. And in second age 850, about 36 and a half. So how does it match up with her mom? Right? Okay, so if we're bumping, so her age, Galadriel's age at the time of the posted, the scribal uh, uh, date of Calabrian's birth, which is 300, right? Galadriel was 31 when Calabrian was born right? According to this new aging system, right? Um, but if we bump it back a few years, will that work? He, he, he's, he's checking, right? He's checking Galadriel. If he bumps Calabrian back, so she's not 50, but only 45 when she gets married to Elrond, does that still work with Galadriel? Yeah. It makes her 36 and a half instead of 31. When, uh, um, 36 and a half instead of 31 when she has her daughter, right? But that's okay. That's okay. So Galadriel's 36 and a half. Um, Calabrian's 45 when she gets married. And all we had to do was uh, tweak um, her um, uh, her birth year. But that's okay because those scribes full of errors anyway. Okay, fine. Um, but what about Arwen? Okay. So she's 44, right? So she... Um, uh, 44 to 20... It's a little weird, right? It's getting a little weird, um, but it's not horrible. It's, but but he's keep he keeps going. At the wedding, she was nearly forty-five. Aragorn was twenty in twenty-nine fifty-one, and forty-nine in twenty-nine eighty, and at their wedding, eighty-eight. But it seems probable that Aragorn's life was similarly arranged. Thus, he grew to maturity as quick as the normal human rate, and then slowed to Numenorean aging rate of three to one. He was thus 20 in 2951, but in 2980, he was the equivalent of 30. So 20 plus 29 divided by 3 equals 30. At wedding, 20 plus 68 divided by 3 equals nearly 43. And so close in age to Arwen. At death, he was 190 equals 20 plus 170 divided by 3. So he was almost 77. He has to do two things to make Aragorn and Arwen work in the new system, Right? Um, the first thing he has to do uh, is change Aragorn's 
aging. Notice how he bumped him up to the Numenorean aging rate of three to one. His first impulse was to say, ah, he's five to two. He's not three to one. He's, he's not quite the full Numenorean rate just because the numbers didn't work out well when he did the Numenorean, when he applied the Numenorean rate, right? But, um, I, yeah, so, uh, but now he can fix it, right? If he applies the same growth thing, so Aragorn ages at the normal human rate until he hits age 20, right? Um, so Aragorn, when he's at the age of 15, is not, in fact, life age of five, right? Um, you know, he didn't have to stay in the awkward teen years for 20 years or something like that, right? Um, because if so, if he's aging at the rate of five to two, notice he missed this before. He's, he's realizing something that he didn't do before. If he were rigorous in applying that five to two ratio through Aragorn's entire life like he was doing, then how old is Aragorn when he meets Arwen? In life years? Uh five to two ratio, so 2.5 to one. Um, he's, uh, uh, what does that make him? Only like 12 and a half, something like that. Um, I'm sorry, that, that, that ratio, I'm having a hard time doing in my head. Uh, what's, uh, no, it's worse than that. It's worse than that because it would be 20 divided by 2.5, right? Which means it would be 40 divided by 5. He's 8. Holy cow. He would be 8 in life years, right? So here's functionally 8-year-old Aragorn meeting Arwen for the first time and, and declaring his love for her, right? No way. No way. Can't, can't happen, right? So this is a better solution anyway, right? And it makes it all work out. So if he changes... There, his Aragorn's youth and makes that work out, then that's fine. So this whole growth and then aging thing, it's working. Now the only other problem is that we have to overlook the fact that Arwen is bit of a cougar, right? I mean, she was, she, he was robbing the cradle before, and now, you know, she's life age forty four and he's life age twenty. Little awkward little awkward, made a little bit better when they get engaged, right? They get engaged, you know, he's 49. So, uh, what is that? He didn't do the math on this one. Yes, he did. About 30. Yeah, he's about 30. Um, yeah, so he's, he's life, so she's 44 and he's 30 when they get engaged, you know, closing the age, the age gap. And, um, and then the age gap has completely closed by the time they get married. So they're almost exactly the same age. When they, she's just a little bit older than him. Um, just a couple years older than him when they get married. And then she drops to his aging rage, so they stay. She stays just a couple years older than him all the way through. I love it. I love the way that he's trying. But, but again, notice the big conclusion. And then I'll stop before my internet dies permanently. The, bit, my, the, the, the conclusion, you notice here how the story is the test, right? The story is the litmus test for the, for, for the, he's, he's trying to thread the needle. He's trying to find the perfect system. What will make him happy here, right? What will make Tolkien happy is a system that works, that makes sense from a worldview standpoint, right? From a world building standpoint, that makes sense in the world building story of the nature of elves, right? Which works with the story and which 
maps onto a consistently applicable mathematical ratio. If he can do all those things, then he's going to be a happy camper. Uh, and he's almost there getting through this, and he's going to continue doing some more math with Silmarillion figures. All right. We are, um, uh, we are almost, uh, we are almost through. Uh, no, I'm, we're quite through. Um, I'm pretty close to the end of my slides, actually. Not, not too bad. Um, but, um, we'll finish chapter 11 next time. I have a challenge for you. Read through chapter 15 next time. There's going to be a lot of numbers, a lot of tables, right? And we'll look at some of the tables and some of those patterns, but he's going to be going over this agent. We're going to see him just continuing to beat his head against this math to try to make it work, right? So let's watch at what happens as he's doing that. But I'm not going to go over every single one of them, right? So let's go through chapter 15 and we will see what we see uh, uh, getting up to that point. So Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. Uh, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye now.